Well, let's stand together, and I'm going to read, and we're, thank you, Joe, good job, and wonderful song, and we're going to talk about heaven today. If the church has any message, it is that there is a heaven, and Christ came to take us there. Now, let's read uh, three verses that most of you are familiar with, Jesus speaking here, and he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you the truth about it. But I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. And then he promised, I will come again. So let it never be said that the return of Christ is a myth or a fable. Jesus said, I will come again. And what will he do? Receive you to myself. Why? That where I am, heaven, there you may be also in heaven. Father, thank you for your word today. And I pray that it will live in our hearts. And I'm asking you, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not have a personal relationship with you, you will draw them near. And those listening by radio, if anyone listening right now, there are many who don't know you personally, speak to them, open their eyes, and draw them to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, heaven sent. Jesus is heaven sent. I want to do a two-week series today on heaven, and I'm going to tell you why. It is amazing to me how and I don't say this condescendingly in any, any sense of the word, just factually, how many people are confused about heaven, what Jesus promised, what happens when somebody dies, where do they go, what does the resurrection from the dead mean, what will happen to us when we are raised from the dead, what will it be like in heaven. I read a quote from Ted Turner this week, the uh, well-known atheist, who said that in his mind the idea of heaven is completely boring. Well, that shows that Ted has a tragic view of what the Bible says about heaven. And we pray for Ted, that he comes to Christ before he dies. So I want to just turn to my authority and the authority of our church, and that is the words and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say about heaven? Because when it gets right down to it, that's what really matters. What did Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the water walker, the raiser of the dead, the multiplier of the fishes and the loaves, the one who spoke like no man ever spoke, what did he say about heaven? Well, Jesus spoke about the certainty and the reality of a place called heaven. No question about it. And in the passages we just read, he calls heaven my father's house. And he describes it as a place of many different rooms, alluding to the fact that it's designed for a vast multitude of occupants. Now, on earth, Jesus was a carpenter. And let me tell you, when he went to heaven, he didn't stop there. He didn't stop on earth with his carpentry work. He said, I'm going to my father's house, and there I will build you a mansion. So his carpentry work extended into eternity 
And that is not a myth or a fable or a cute idea. It's what Jesus said. Did you know that when speaking to the thief on the cross, he called heaven paradise, paradiso, paradise, bliss, endless joy. The word heaven is such a part of the Bible's message that it's mentioned 551 times. 551 times heaven is mentioned. The Bible teaches that heaven will be a place of unparalleled beauty and splendor. What I like is the costliest things on earth, gold, silver, precious stones, so on and so forth, rubies, emeralds, diamonds, will be used for the humblest purposes in heaven. For instance, people kill for gold down here, but in heaven we will walk on gold. In heaven the streets are made of gold. Such pure gold that it's transparent, as it were transparent glass. Gold purified to the hundredth power. The Bible tells us to set our affections on heaven. Those of us who know Jesus Christ and are walking this earth are not to set our affections here on earth, but on things above. Colossians 3, 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For what we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell is transitory, it's temporary, it's all passing away. The chair you're sitting in right now will one day burn and melt with a fervent heat. This building will pass away. Everything we have built, all the skyscrapers, all the incredible structures, all the architecture, all the artwork, everything will melt with a fervent heat because it's temporary. But not God and not Christ and not the Word of God and not your soul and my soul. Our souls are eternal. And we are the only creatures that God made that way. He breathed in us the breath of life. And that breath of life, that soul, is eternal. Now, interestingly, when you, when you look around at what the culture believes about heaven, you hear all kinds of different views from people on what they think heaven is or what it will be like. Even Christians believe in some of these uh, erroneous views. Let me name a few. When asked to describe their view of heaven, some people will say something like this. Well, I think it's people floating around on clouds with harps. With harps in their hand and a pair of wings, they sprouted on the way up. And we're flying around with wings, playing a harp, and no wonder Ted Turner thought that would be boring. I would be bored with that in a week. But that's what a lot of people believe about heaven. Did you know that's not in the Bible at all? That view of heaven. Many others believe and have been taught that St. Peter, most jokes about heaven have St. Peter guarding the gates to heaven and that he lets you in or keeps you out. Again, that is completely untrue. There's nothing in the Bible about that. It's a myth. It's a fable. In fact, did you know that almost everything you've ever seen on TV or in movies about heaven is erroneous, it's false information, it is Hollywood make-believe. People do not go to heaven and get sent back for second chances. It says it is given unto a man to die one time, and after that the judgment. You will die once, you will not come back as anything else. You will not be given a second chance to make things right. It is given unto a man to die one time, and after that he will face a judgment. 
either the judgment seat of Christ where your works will be judged, but you will go to heaven, or the great white throne judgment where your sins will be judged and you will be excommunicated from heaven and spend eternity without God. That's the truth according to the Bible. Now, not only that, we never return or are sent back by God to help other people with their problems in life. That's Hollywood. That's make-believe. That's Jim Carrey stuff. That's not real. That's, it's a wonderful life. No, you never come back to help anybody. As a matter of fact, the rich man sitting in hell looked up into heaven and spoke to Abraham and said, let me go back and warn my family about this place called hell. And he was refused that opportunity. You will never come back and tell anybody anything. When you die, you will face your maker. I will face my maker. And the way we have lived our life and who we believed in, where we put our faith, what we did with the message of Jesus, we will answer for. And people never become angels in heaven. We will never be angels. We will be the redeemed saints of God. Not angels. When scanning through history, I find it very interesting that man instinctively knows that this is not all there is. We know this is not it. There is something deep down inside. You can say you're an atheist all day long, but something deep down tells you that there is more than this. Man has always embraced the belief, no matter what culture you turn to, the Egyptian culture, the ancient Babylonian culture, no matter what you look at, the Greek culture, there was always this sense that there's got to be more than this. There is something beyond this. We were made in the image of God. We know this is not it. We know that we are unique in God's creation. And that just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. We know something lays beyond the grave. We know that this is only a dress rehearsal for what's coming. In the Greek and Roman religions, before Jesus came, people believed in a place called Elysium. Elysium, which was a place of reward for the virtuous dead. And they believed in Tartarus as opposed to tartar sauce. I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. But I, I read that every time. And Tartarus, it almost says tartar sauce. They believed in Tartarus, which was their version of hell. So even though they did not have the truth according to Christ, they knew there is a reward for a life rightly lived. And there is a curse on the life that lived in evil, a place of damnation where the wicked were punished. And the Indian cultures, we've all heard of it, they believed in the happy hunting grounds when they died. That was their version of heaven. And in Buddhism, heaven is a state of freedom from all desire. Though they don't believe in actual heaven, they long for a place that is heaven-like. But what is the truth about heaven? What does the Bible say about heaven? Well, Jesus and the Scriptures give us the only accurate account of heaven, and Jesus ought to know because He claimed to have come from heaven. <clears throat> now I want you to listen very carefully to the claims of Christ, because Jesus said things throughout His life and His ministry no one ever said. And if He, he was either seriously 
insane, deluded, psychopathic lunacy, or he was telling the truth. Because you can't say the things he said in your right mind unless they're true. And so you need to decide. Some of you that are undecided, you need to decide. Listen to what Jesus said. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven. I came from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Did you know that Jesus said that? I came down from heaven, not to do my will, but I have been heaven sent. I have been sent by God, sent by heaven. Jesus is the only man in all of history who claimed to have come from heaven and to have been sent by heaven to take you and I to heaven through his death and resurrection. From heaven, sent by heaven to take us to heaven. Muhammad didn't say that. Buddha didn't say that. Confucius didn't say that. Zoroaster didn't say that. Show me a world religious leader and I'll show you somebody who never said that kind of thing. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me but I will raise them up at the last day. There Jesus claimed to be eternal God with the power to resurrect a dead body from the grave. That's awesome or crazy. But you can't discard Christ and just say, well, he was a nice guy, had a nice thing to say, one of many world religious leaders, a very inspirational personality. No, no, no. He does not allow us that. He says, I came from heaven, sent by heaven to take you to heaven. And if you put your faith in me, the day will come that I will speak to your dead body and I will raise it from the grave. And that's next week. Don't miss next week. Because being resurrected from the dead is the core doctrine of the Christian faith. So what did Jesus in the Bible tell us about heaven? Listen carefully to what Jesus said about heaven. Jesus, first of all, said that heaven is a place. It is a place. It's not an idea. Heaven is not a myth. Heaven is not a fable. It is not a figment of somebody's imagination. It is not a metaphor for some kind of eternal bliss. It's not make-believe. It's not Greek mythology. Heaven, according to Jesus, is an actual place for the redeemed of God. It's a place. One day the Apostle Paul had a vision of heaven. And it was so stunning and breathtaking he couldn't even speak about it. For 14 years it rendered the great Apostle Paul speechless about this experience. He had to can it for 14 years. When he finally broke his silence... Here's what he said about the experience. Fourteen years ago, I was taken up to the third heaven for a visit. Don't ask me whether my body was there or just my spirit, because I don't know. Only God can answer that. But anyway, he goes on, there I was in paradise, paradiso, bliss, heaven. There I was in heaven, in paradise, and I heard things so astounding that they are beyond a man's power to describe or put into words. I heard things, I saw things, I experienced things that I was afraid to even talk about, that I could not verbalize the great genius that this man was, an intellectual giant. Yet he saw things, heard things, felt things, experienced things, 
He could not find words to express. And even here he doesn't tell us what he saw. He can't find the words. He can just tell us what happened. What a place called heaven. What an amazing, amazing frontier. The final frontier. The last frontier. The place where all the redeemed of God will live. Heaven. Now I want you to notice that he used a phrase that should have piqued your interest if you caught it. And that is third heaven. He said, I went to the third heaven for a visit. What does that mean? Third heaven. Well, the Bible identifies three different heavens. Did you know that? And they're very easy. It's not complicated. It's not profound theology. There are three places called heaven in the Bible. The first one is the earthly atmosphere. We're in it right now. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, the beginning of the creation of the world. Listen to what it says. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth and across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So the first heaven is the earthly, oxygenated atmosphere. It's where the planes fly, the birds fly. It's where the clouds float. It is the first heaven, the earthly atmosphere. Heaven number one. Now the second heaven, what is it? The second heaven, according to the Bible, is outer space, the cosmos. When God was making covenant with Abraham, here's what he said to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 17. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Now we know because of our progress in science that they now have telescopes that tell us they will never reach the end of galaxy upon galaxy, world upon world, stars upon stars, vista upon vista, endless space. But that's the second heaven. And the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. He's talking about the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, the galaxies, the meteorites. All that you see when you look up. That's God's creation. And what do they do? They declare the glory of God. Let me tell you something. There is no blindness so great. No blindness so profound. No blindness so brazen to look at all this creation and say, it just evolved. The more I think about it, and the older I get, and the more I look at the obvious proof of intentional design, I'm amazed that anybody, especially a brilliant high IQ scientist, can say, oh yeah, it just all evolved, it just all took place. You can send a tornado through a junkyard, you're not going to get a Mercedes. You're going to get spread out junk. This world is created on purpose, by design, intentional. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's the second heaven. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, that's the first heaven, shows His handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech. Night unto night they show forth and tell forth and tell of His knowledge. But then there's the third heaven. What's the third heaven? The third heaven is the place where God Almighty dwells. Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. 
In 1 Kings 8, verse 30, And may you hear, he said to God, May you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Then he said, Hear, O Lord, in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So Solomon said, The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. It is where God dwells. Jesus said, pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What was he talking about? He was saying in the third heaven, God's will is perfectly executed. His will is done. It is serene. It's blissful. It's glorious. It's filled with his glory. Heaven is God's home. Psalms 11.4 says the Lord's throne is in heaven. These passages show us that God dwells in the third heaven. And he answers prayer from his position in the third heaven. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Right here as it's done in the third heaven. And where is the Redeemer going to go? Not the first heaven, not the second, but the third. Well then, if there's a third heaven, what is going on in that third heaven? What's there? What's taking place? What can we anticipate and look forward to? Well, the Bible says that there is in heaven a city. You say, oh, great. I like the, I like the country. No, listen to me. <laughs> there is a city, and you're going to want to be in this city. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's in heaven right now. When Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he was talking about this city. New Jerusalem, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John saw this new city. He was, he was shown this city, and he described it in glowing technicolor. He paints a beautiful portrait of what you and I are going to step into one day. John said, then I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride for her husband. This city that is in heaven right now, when Christ returns, this city will be lowered from heaven onto a renovated earth. Now I want you to keep in mind that the earthly Jerusalem has always been special to God. It's special to Him right now. That's why we are totally out of our realm of authority to command the Jewish people to do anything with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's city. He's always laid claim to it. It's God's city, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His city. And you know that all the Bible dramas, the incredible Bible drama, I've been there. It's an incredible place to go. From Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus Christ dying on the cross and doing his miracles. All of those things happened. All those dramas took place in Jerusalem. But the heavenly Jerusalem that Jesus went to construct and build, that he has prepared a place for us with, that Jerusalem surpasses the earthly Jerusalem like the sun surpasses the moon. We're told that the New Jerusalem is filled with God's presence. You know why I like church so much? Uh, because when we worship, I feel, I sense the presence of God. Now, I've learned in my walk with the Lord to 
practice that presence more and more everywhere I go. I sing, I worship, and I do my best to practice the presence of God everywhere I go. We got a little bit of heaven when we got saved, but it was only an earnest, only a down payment of what is coming. Give me your best worship session, your most powerful experience with God, and that's only a slight foretaste of what is coming. Amen. Because what is coming is filled with God's... There is never a let-up. You don't have to work up the presence of God. You don't have to pray for it. You don't have to try to worship His presence down. You are walking in, living in, breathing in, soaking in, enjoying 24-7 the presence of God. It permeates that place. John wrote that the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. We won't need general electric 100-watt bulbs. We won't need these new, funny, funky, curly-cue bulbs. We won't need light candles, nothing, because the light of the glory of God will light that place. And I'm glad to say there will be no electric bill. Amen. I thank God for electricity, but the, the light... See, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing with the glory of God. So much so they had to put a veil over his face. He was glowing in the dark. He, wear, he wore the Shekinah glory of God, and it was a light. It says in the Bible that light came into the world with Jesus Christ. The light of the world was Christ. He was light. And his face, his glory is going to light that place. We won't need sun. We won't need moon. We have the light of the glory of God. And the New Jerusalem is a real city. It's a real city with gates, mansions, streets, inhabitants. But there's no garbage, no trash, no soot, no, no nothing we associate with earthly cities. There's no pollution. There's no traffic. But it is a real city, gates, mansions, streets, inhabitants, walking in the streets, dwelling in mansions. Do you know the Bible even lays out the size of heaven? The size of the New Jerusalem? It's 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 miles with its wall 216 feet high. Now, I've heard some brilliant theologians, some higher critics say, well, he's just speaking metaphorically there. No, he's not. Dodo. <laughs> you don't speak metaphorically about precise measurements. Hello. Where is your faith? What does that mean? The New Jerusalem, therefore, has an area of 140,625 square miles or 90 million acres is the way that figures out. Now, architects have calculated that the enormous size of the New Jerusalem would easily provide a mansion of over half a mile in length and breadth, half a mile in length and breadth, to every believer from Adam to the present. Leon Morris wrote, a city of this size is too large for the imagination to take in. John is certainly conveying the idea of splendor. And more importantly, that there is room for everybody. And there's no city taxes. 
And there's no building codes. And there's no building inspectors. And there's no interest rate. Because Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Say, Pastor, do you really believe this? Well, of course I believe. Why would I not believe it? Well, because you can't see it. Well, I didn't see the wind that blew my tree down last year either. I don't see the oxygen I'm breathing right now. When I look outside and I see my tree going like this, I don't see what's blowing it. But I know there is a real thing called wind, and it's blowing and rustling the leaves. And when I come to church, and I see the people worshiping God, and I see lives change, and I see people getting excited and filled with His Spirit, and, and their lives being totally transformed, I don't see what did it, but I see the trees bowing. Why would you not believe it? You say, well, because I believe in evolution. Well, that takes more faith than what I just said. I'm serious. You believe that some primordial soup, some ancient distant sea, where'd that come from? But we won't go there. We'll give you the sea. And out of the sea, one day came a little single-celled organism, an amoeba. And it evolved. It grew legs. It grew arms. It croaked. It tweeted. It flew. It turned into everything we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. All the life that we experience came out of that single-celled organism putting all your faith in time and chance. Well, you've got faith, friend. You have faith. Because let me ask you a question. What came first? The lungs or the heart? What came first? The blood vessels that carry the blood to the heart that wasn't there yet before the heart was there? Where'd the blood go that was in those veins? Well, the heart came first. Well, where'd the blood go that was pumping from the heart? The heart said, according to you, I need veins. I, evolution, give me veins so I can pump this blood somewhere. And evolution, time and chance said, you got the veins, dude. Hang on. In over a few thousand years, the veins came. Boom, 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 boom. Now the blood's got somewhere to go from your heart. Come on, please, please. And let's talk about the eyeball. The optic nerve, the incredible ability to perceive light and color and motion. Right, come on, please. Evolved? Evolved? You have more faith than I do. Don't mock my faith that believes there is a city somewhere I cannot yet see. Because you're telling me that happened. You weren't there. You didn't see it. You can't take me to it. And you can't show me the missing link. Don't mock my faith. I love you. What is happening in the New Jerusalem right now? It's currently inhabited by the angels. The souls of all those who have died in Christ. And the Old Testament saints who died in faith. That is what and that is who inhabits the New Jerusalem right now. It was this very city that the Old Testament saints longed for. 
And it's described in Hebrews 11. It says in Hebrews 11, all these Old Testament saints died still believing what God had promised them. What were they believing? They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads and strangers on this earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. They were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the prophets, the Old Testament saints, they died looking for a heavenly homeland. They said, this earth ain't my home. I'm just passing through. It's a hotel. That is why it says in Hebrews 11, quote, this is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So when Jesus died and when he resurrected from the dead, you read in the Bible that, that hundreds of saints came out of their graves and walked around and were seen by many. Who were they? It was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the prophets, the Old Testament saints. They had been waiting for the resurrection of Christ to be able to enter into their heavenly home. And when he rose from the dead, that was their ticket to ride. The third heaven is where God dwells. The new Jerusalem, a beautiful, glorious city, awaits all of God's redeemed children. And the way to get there was clearly stated by Jesus himself. Now what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to be very politically incorrect, which I love to be, because no philosophy has done more damage to people anywhere in the world or in history since Darwinian evolution in my opinion, than the philosophy of political correctness. Because it tells us you can't be exclusive. You can't say that something is right or wrong. You can't make a judgment on somebody's life as to whether it's a right life or a wrong one. It is political correctness hates and rejects absolute truth. Political correctness demands that there can't be an exclusive way to get to God. Political correctness has put blinders on us where we can't call an enemy an enemy. Our enemies in the natural are playing our belief in political correctness like a violin. And they're going to destroy our country if we don't shed political correctness. Political correctness... I'm going to tell you the most politically incorrect man in history is probably Jesus Christ. Because he was exclusive. Listen to what he said. Jesus answered, I am the way, the road the route, the means to heaven. I'm the way. He said the truth and the life, but I just want to pluck out of that the way. I'm the way. The way to where? I'm the way, the road, the path, the route to heaven. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, Jesus, you're very politically incorrect there. How dare you tell us that you're the only way? But friend, listen, he did say that. And you would do well to listen to what he said, ponder what he said, think about it. Did you know that he said that? Well, Pastor, I just believe in this enlightened day that there are many ways to heaven and God sees our good intentions. Then you do not understand God. Jesus said, I am the way, the road, the route, the means. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
The Apostle Peter told a hostile audience, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name, way, route, path to get to heaven by which you must be saved than Him. You can't get any clearer than that. There isn't any. I read this week about a big bunch of people that were at a wedding in another country, and this whole wedding party was walking across this old rickety bridge that crossed over, uh, that was put over a river that was rushing by. And I mean, there was the women in the wedding gowns and the best men with their suits on, and the, this this sharp, highly dressed. Uh, uh, a party, wedding party, going across where the wedding was going to be held, and they're crossing this bridge. And when all of them were right in the middle, pop! Pop! Whoosh! The bridge gave in. And they all fell in wedding dresses. They were all dressed up, couldn't get there. Had on their best, couldn't make it across. Had on their best, but the bridge gave way. Listen to me. Many people are going to be walking across a bridge that they have devised themselves other than Christ. They're going to have their best on in their mind. All dressed up, going to the wedding, going to watch the marriage of the bride and groom. Man, I'm excited. Can't wait to get there. But before they made it, the bridge they were trusting in gave way, and they fell in. And they were ruined for the party. It's going to be that way with people all over this world. They're going to say, well, I trusted Buddhism. I trusted other religions, other faiths, other ways. I trusted myself, my own good works. I had on my best clothes. But you're going to get right halfway across, and what you were trusting in is going to fail you. It's going to let you down. You're going to be dumped and your best garb ruined. Because what is your righteousness and mind to God? It's like filthy rags. You can get in your very best, but God says, no, there's only one thing that will carry you across the one and only bridge. And the bridge that I made is made of two pieces of wood. I made a bridge. God made a bridge with two planks. One pointing up. That old rugged cross, thank God for that cross. Hear me, friend. Your faith in other things will fail you when the time comes for you to meet your God. It'll fail you. You've got to go across His one and only bridge, the cross. It points up. That means up towards God and God down towards you. The cross made the way for us to fellowship with Him and for Him to reach down and take our hand. That old rugged cross pointed up towards God and then out towards men, reconciling us to Him. But the only bridge that's going to hold you is the blood and that cross because God, anytime a sinner comes to Him, He lays that cross down across the troubled waters and says, walk across this. Just walk across this cross. Just go on across it. It doesn't matter if you've got on filthy rags, because you all do anyway. Walk across it, and you'll find that the rushing waters are all beneath you. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, the certainty of facing Him one day. But you cross 
by way of that cross and you reach the other side. And what is there waiting for you? A place called heaven. Can we stand together? Pastor, I've been in, my, in church all my life, and I, I've heard this many, many times. Well, you know what? We need to hear this over and over again. But some of you, some of you, you haven't walked across that bridge. You're just kind of somehow trusting in God knows. You're trusting in you being a good person or you meaning well. You're trusting in you. You're trusting in something other. You're trusting in a false bridge. And I want to ask you to pray about that right now. Well, I'll think about it a year or two from now. Listen, you may not have a year. You may not have a week. You may never hear another message like this, and the devil will see to it when you walk out of here that you forget what you heard. You kind of put it on the back burner and say, oh, well, you know, someday, some way, when I'm ready. No, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. It's time right now. If you have drifted from God, turn to Him and say, Lord, I'm coming home. I'm, I want to come back to you. I want to walk with you like I used to. Can we bow for a moment? You can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm not sure. If I have ever done what you said, if I put my faith in Christ, in His name alone, and asked Him to save me, forgive me of my sin, and I have not walked across that two-plank bridge, and I want to settle the issue today. There's a heaven waiting for you. It's a real place. You really want to risk missing it? Or if you've drifted from the Lord, said, you know, I don't know how it happened, but I've gotten so far from where I used to be. And pastor, I'll let you pray for me. I want to come home again. I want to be excited about the things of God again. I want to be in the Word again. If you're in either one of those categories, would you let me pray for you? I, I would consider it an honor to pray for you. You can say, Pastor Jeff, that's me you lift your hand right up where you are I'm in one of those two categories and I need to come home put it high where I can see you I need him there and there and there bless you bless you would you do something forget about everybody in here just what matters is you and God I'm going to ask you to slip out from where you are and just come down and stand here I want to take your hand and I want to pray with you right here why do I need to come down? Because you need to take a step for God. As soon as you take one step, it's a step of faith. And He's going to meet you and answer you. So you come right now. If you raised your hand, don't be afraid. We've all been there. Just come and stand. And God's going to hear that prayer. And he's going to honor it. In Jesus' name, let's worship, Joe. I'm going to wait just a moment. Slip out and come now.